0: Welcome, listeners, to the News Desk, our regular First Things podcast. This is Rusty here in New York, and I'm just delighted to have Ronald Dworkin with me, the author of The Politics of Unhappiness in the May 2022 issue. Ronald Dworkin is a physician and a political scientist. He's a former senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and he's the author of Artificial. Happiness, a 2006 book that uh, provided, um, got you interested in this. Is that, is that right? This, this question about constructed feelings.
1: Yes, uh, that actually, that book, Artificial Happiness, is built on another essay I had written a few years before for the public interest called the medicalization of unhappiness, where people were, I noticed a trend among patients that I was dealing with in the hospital who were more and more on these antidepressants. But there were other avenues of finding artificial happiness, alternative medicine and exercise, endorphins. And I saw this phenomenon of people trying to find happiness in artificial ways. I thought that was a problem. I thought they were arresting their impulse to change their lives when their lives needed changing by taking these medications. Artificial unhappiness is sort of a a different animal altogether, but um, it does come extension of my work from artificial happiness.
0: Well, you point out there's a paradox I mean, people have negative feelings, but you distinguish that from unhappiness. Explain.
1: Yes, we all have unhappiness that's direct and immediate from some kind of negative stimulus. So I mentioned in the essay, we stub our toe, we feel miserable, we feel unhappy. Uh, We're fired from work, we feel miserable, we feel unhappy. It's a direct and immediate association. But in other ways, we sometimes have just negative sensations in general, uh, negative feelings. We're not quite sure why. We don't call it unhappiness yet, but we feel down for some reason. And so we eagerly try to pin a cause on it. We look for an explanation for our negative feelings. And we often look for problems in love or health or work, something to explain it. The drive to do so is intense. And when we do that, we then call ourselves unhappy because, because we have this reason or explanation. But sometimes the connection between the explanation and the feeling is artificial uh, we do have a negative sensation, but because we're grasping so much for an explanation for that artificial, that, that misery, we are actually artificially unhappy in the sense that we give ourselves an explanation that, well, really doesn't, it's really not the reason for feeling these negative sensations. Uh, sometimes negative sensations just come whenever, but because we have these explanations, we call ourselves unhappy and that's how it proceeds from there. But it's artificial in the sense that the cause of the unhappiness uh, actually The the explanation for that happiness is given after the negative feeling we experience.
0: It runs so counter to, we're so trained to think that our unhappiness or that our, we're so trained for the because, you know, I'm not, you know, I have a negative body image or something like that, or, you know, I'm not accorded the respect that I deserve, or as you give the example, I, I know I'm married to, Soon or not early enough or so you yeah, help us help, help help our listeners understand the way in which it's like maybe scratching a scab that that I'm unhappy because is a is a kind of um there's a biblical image of a dog going back to his vomit
1: yes yes it is like that we hate mysteries I think maybe it's part of a one more aspect of human nature we want an explanation we want explanations for anything for That's why people invented uh, superstitions to explain things that could not be explained by the science of the time. So it is natural to us as the drive to eat or drink. We want explanations for our miseries. And that connection is so, so tight that uh, we immediately, upon feeling any kind of negative sensation, uh, reach for some kind of explanation, uh, uh, some reason to tell us why we are miserable and somehow we feel better when we do so. And we even like to talk about those reasons with other people. And other people then tell us and confirm us in those explanations. And you have this whole cycle, this vicious cycle, where you had a negative sensation. It wasn't unhappiness until you discovered this cause. Now you call yourselves unhappy. And as a result, you sort of build on that and feed on that. And you become unhappy because of this explanation that really is sort of artificial to begin with.
0: You give the analogy of evil spirits and witches. So this is not... A modern phenomenon, although the modern element would be the the psycho- i mean the scientific nomenclature that's associated with these explanations
1: yes i I mean four hundred years ago five hundred years ago, people would say i am an i am feeling badly, I don't know why, what is the reason, oh it's evil spirits or it's witches. Or even the doctors of that era, they didn't have advanced science, they would say you have evil humors, yes. or some negative ether, or something. There is some explanation that people were going to give others for why they're unhappy. The reason this essay, the rest, of this essay came out of the fact that sometimes these explanations for our, um, our our bad feelings they reach a point where they explain the unhappy, the the negative feelings of millions of people, great numbers of people. So witches and evil humors would explain the negative sensations of millions of people say 500 years ago, but now we have different explanations for our negative feelings. And I describe that in three waves of artificial unhappiness in our modern era, the,
0: the, the waves are related to treatment strategies.
1: That's right. And and so, be, so
0: underneath those treatment strategies are these explanations.
1: That's right. So the, and for example, the first wave, the explanation for your negative feeling is neurotransmitters.
0: It's still out there.
1: It's still out there. Yes, it's still out there. Yes. I think it's
0: actually, in my experience, the most common among my, of course, I'm a baby boomer.
1: I'd say so. I mean, if you look at the numbers of people on medication, antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication in the United States, I believe it's uh, about 20% of Americans are on these medications. Some because they have true clinical depression, but some, many others, because they're suffering from sort of everyday unhappiness. And it is built that, that that the prescription comes when you get the explanation for your negative feelings. That explanation is if you have a neurotransmitter imbalance problem which could be corrected with these medications. So you see how the explanation for your bad feeling leads inevitably to the medication to fix the imbalance.
0: and in your assessment, there's a, there's not to say that neurotransmitters are call, causing these negative feelings, it's really not all that different from the evil humors explanation.
1: <laughs> yes, it's not. really. Something that, there was an association established uh, by accident in the 1940s between clinical depression and uh, neurotransmitter imbalance. And it was discovered just by chance when someone was treating uh, people who had a tuberculosis, I believe, or some disease. And they noted that these medications that have effects on neurotransmitters were also making these patients very happy. Uh, and so they inferred from that there must be a connection between neurotransmitters and depression. From that, they took that association and made it causation. They said, okay, a neurotransmitter balance causes depression. And from that, they said, neurotransmitters now cause unhappiness. So bit by bit, it went from an association between neurotransmitters and depression to a causation between neurotransmitters and unhappiness. There were several leaps and science never confirmed that. It was just mental leaps, prejudices among the medical community.
0: And, and uh, the, the drugs that are prescribed in these situations are, as you describe them, they're not all that different from very old school, you know, you feel down or whatever and you go to the bar and you yes, get loud. Really.
1: <laughs> they're really, I mean, it's interesting. The drugs that we have now, the antidepressants such as Prozac, Zoloft, um, more recent ones, they're really no more efficacious than the ones that were discovered in the 1940s in terms of improving depression. They're not really any better in terms of track record. They may be safer, but not better in terms of um, improving outcome. But in a way, when you think about what these drugs do, they the drugs do what uh, no different what the drugs before were, they were used to treat a depression, which was opium or amphetamines or even going to a bar and drinking alcohol. They stupefy people. They numb your conscience so you don't judge your life, Uh, you don't see your life and judge it. Uh, Somehow your life is concealed from you and you feel better about it for that reason. So these are stupefying agents, and they're cleaner agents. Uh, They don't make you throw up on the street, unlike when you go to a bar and drink. Hmm. That's what their purpose is, to stupefy you.
0: And the more recent ones are less potent in that regard?
1: The the more recent ones, they've gotten, uh, they generally are safer than the ones from the first generation, for example, the MAO inhibitors. They were rather dangerous. Uh, they could cause arrhythmias and other kinds of um, uh, crises like neuroleptic malignant syndrome. They were they were not particularly safe. The new ones are safer, but they work on basically the same principle. They work on neurotransmitters, and they cause a kind of a, many of them cause a kind of a zombie-like effect where you sort of feel uh, sort of uh, just uh, uh, artificially happy, but uh, you don't feel highs or lows. That's how it's often described. Yeah. Some people, some like it. Some people don't. Yeah, my friends.
0: That's their complaint. They take these medications, and and their their report to me is that the problem is you don't really have strong feelings at all.
1: That's right. Many of them, right? As I said, it's sort of this the zombie like where you're sort of flattened. Your emotional pattern is just sort of uh, dulled a bit, uh, which the highs are not as high, but the lows are not as low.
0: You segue from that, and this is a light motif throughout the piece, which I think is really. Very, I mean, I learned a lot about the three stages, um, but it's the political, political, cultural fallout, so to speak, or ramifications of these approaches to unhappiness that really is very fascinating. And and you you say that the neurotransmitter explanation gives rise to. Uh, Politics becoming a competition for happiness, you say, as much as a struggle of interests. How does that, how do you think that that, how does that kind of tumble out of this 50s, 60s, 70s way of thinking?
1: Uh, I think when medicine promised people who were unhappy that we have a solution to your problem, you have a neurotransmitter imbalance, we will give you these medicines and you will become happy. When people realized that medicine was not going to fulfill their dream of happiness, either because they were too zombie-like, they didn't like the feeling, or because they were not that happy, they were still just less depressed. And they also realized that maybe the explanation for happiness, the connection between neurotransmitters and happiness was sort of flimsy after all. There's a lot of literature on that subject that went into the public realm. People realized that medicine has sort of failed them and that they had promised to find happiness through medicine, through neurotransmitters, wasn't going to work. And so no longer having that explanation for that explanation for uh, unhappiness—they search for others, uh, no longer within their bodies, no longer in their neurotransmitters, but outward, outward in the world. And when they did so, they latched on, latched onto various things, uh, maybe um, uh, a problem at work or a problem in a relationship, and all these things inevitably find their way into politics because all relationships are inevitably political at the end. And so everything found its way into politics eventually, once the neurotransmitter uh, imbalance explanation for unhappiness went away or, was, or faded in importance. And once that happened, people began to gravitate towards political issues because the political issues were always standing by behind whatever the explanation for their unhappiness was, whether it was an ideological uh, relationship problem, at, or private or at work or whatever, there was always politics behind it. And as a result, people began to think that if they could fix that problem and at least have the hope that they could fix that problem, that political problem, they would somehow find happiness. Now, were they really going to look to politics to fix the problem deep down? Some problems are just not that fixable in our political system. Perhaps not, but at least they had the hope. They had the hope that if their side won, their problem might be fixed and their happiness might come as a result. But they didn't realize that their happiness was in the hope itself, by hoping that their political struggle outcome might come go their way. That was their happiness. That was the and that's why the political struggles these days are as much a competition of interest as a competition for happiness, because people want their side to win. They have hope that their side would win. To be happy is to to have hope is to be happy. And if you have that hope dashed, you are miserable. That's your only chance for happiness. And now it's been lost. And as a result, people take politics very, very seriously because their happiness is at stake, not just their interests, but their happiness and their hope. And the side that loses, their hope is dashed. Their happiness was based on that hope. To hope was to be happy, and now it's gone. And they are miserable. And that's why I think we see so much depression on both sides of the partisan divide when their candidate loses, because so much more is invested in politics now than simply a competition for interests. Their happiness is at stake because their hope is at stake.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think... uh you know um one of uh, some of my female friends you know it's uh it's it's the disadvantages that women face in the workplace or something like that that they that that functions as the explanation the because for their their unhappy feelings um, and of course that is immediately political um, right and then well, like i can see how right and then at the end of the day you don't really, you don't really so much that's really not as important as the fact that, wow, with an election we can break through and really change things, and then I'll be happy.
1: <laughs> right, or, or at least at the very least, my cause for unhappiness has unhappiness has been confirmed because others are feeling the same way. That's why we won, and therefore uh, my cause of unhappiness has been confirmed and verified, and and uh, given the imprimatur of of, of public opinion. It's even more respected. So all these things go into the feeling of hope, which translate into the feeling of happiness.
0: The second wave, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I guess the first wave with um, psychoactive uh, drugs um, is, a, is creating a feeling of pleasant feelings, or at least blocking out the unpleasant feelings. And this is a more explicit, Strategy. You basically block out unpleasant thoughts.
1: Right. Well, the, the strategy for cognitive behavioral therapy is at least more you could say customized. In the case of the neurotransmitter problem, everyone had the neurotransmitter balance imbalance problem. Therefore, everyone gets almost the same drug. The cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever cause you give yourself as an explanation for unhappiness, cognitive behavioral therapy is going to deal with it individually uh, and customize it, and uh, it's not going to give you one size fits all medication. And so in the case of cognitive behavioral therapy, the argument was that you, are, uh, you, you have a cause of unhappiness. Uh, there isn't much we can do about it in terms of fixing that problem, but we can somehow detach you from that cause by giving you new values and looking at that cause in a different way. And by doing so, you'll sort of free yourself from that cause and you'll become less unhappy as a result.
0: So like a good example there. Like, I feel like uh, oh, uh, I, I, I haven't uh, accomplished I enough in my life or my, my marriage is not good or whatever.
1: Yeah. So my my, my, I, my career, my futile career hasn't gone anywhere. All my friends are doing much better and I feel just miserable. Well, you would go to the cognitive behavioral therapist, a therapist in general, and they would try to help you detach yourself from that cause by seeing life in a new way. Perhaps they would try to change your value system so that uh, don't be so ambitious. There is more to life than simply work and success. Uh, Work and success is not the panacea that you think it is. Many other people who are very successful, they're not particularly unhappy, not particularly happy. Uh, Try to uh, look in other avenues of your life to find happiness. That's detaching you from your cause. It's making it less pointed. And that's the cognitive behavioral therapy method of dealing with the causes of unhappiness. Detach you from it. Put some space between you and the cause in some way. Now, there is still a little bit of the old the old form of stupefaction when you shut down the mind within cognitive behavioral therapy. The mindfulness or biofeedback is not that different than the method used with the antidepressants in that you don't think about the future, you don't think about the f- past, you're only in the moment in the present. You sort of shut your mind down. It's not that different from the stupefying effect of the antidepressants where you're not thinking grandly about your life. You're shutting it down so you don't think at all about it. Uh, so it's, that, that's closer in a way to the neurotransmitter method. But the general therapist method is to detach yourself from your cause, or your, what you think is your cause of unhappiness.
0: I mean, there's uh, parallels here. You have uh, Lucretius's Epicureanism. There's Seneca's Stoicism. And so Hellenistic philosophy, late Hellenistic philosophy, has a strong therapeutic dimension to it. Um, You know, don't think about the affairs of this world. And, you know, if you're an epicurean, if you realize that we're just atoms in the void, uh, then we won't take things so seriously. We won't be so unhappy. Um, but, But I think, I guess the difference here is that for cognitive behavioral therapy, there's a way in which both the Epicurean and the stoic is really arguing this is the truth about the world or the cosmos whereas co- co- you know cognitive behavioral therapy is is more like well whatever the negative thought is the therapist is going to detach you from it without sort of without regard to what's true and false
1: <laughs> that's true and to some extent what you're saying the therapists have not reinvented the wheel here they're using techniques i mean I, I, people have asked me, do you stupefying agents? And I've often said, only one, philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can make oh, you see... Feel... of
0: philosophy, I suppose.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, or even Cicero wrote the, the book about grief. You know, he, he couldn't find a solution to his grief when his daughter died, but he tried to find a solution to philosophy. Okay, so this is not new. But what's happening here is you make a good point. Um, the uh, philosophers in the past, they tried to uh, detach you from your cause by trying to just help you discover truth. In this case, uh, today, uh, the therapists are simply trying to detach you from your cause by changing your value system, even if it if it's, should, should be changed or even if it's truth or not. So if you are unhappy about your career, well, we're just simply going to lessen your ambition and to look at ambition as a value that's not as important. They're beginning to play with your value system in order to think less strongly about the cause of your unhappiness. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing as searching for truth.
0: Right, right. Um, and here you spell out in terms of the political and social implications. It's a very subtle uh, sequence of, of, of thoughts where, I mean, you, you, you're you back to your point about politics, that there's something intensely validating about the fact that millions of others agree with me, that this is, this is a terrible source of unhappiness. Um, and so you can imagine the cognitive behavioral therapist, Having a whole slew of, of, um, of clients that, that, um, that their cause is the same. You know, it's that they, that they feel excluded from, you know, they feel like they don't fit in. And then right. this therapist who happens to have a strong social activist streak sort of says, well, it's one thing to help individual patients, but why don't I start a movement to, to, to create a more affirmative culture for marginalized people? Yes, and, I just, I, and we sort of go through this sequence of yeah. thoughts. And it's very nicely done.
1: Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think it was a conspiracy. I don't think there was a, 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 a an act of mind thinking. Let's tre- create a kind of cognitive behavioral behavioral program for the entire country. But it worked out that way. So and, I agree. I
0: always tell people who tell me about conspiracies. I say, no, no, no. It's much worse than that. It's a consensus.
1: That's a a consensus. So initially, the therapy uh, approach to unhappiness penetrates first the civil rights movement in the 1960s, where before the emphasis was on uh, when it comes to civil rights on on jobs and access to voting. But then it becomes more psychological. Uh, The emphasis is on self-esteem, how the marginalized Mm -hmm. people feel about themselves, what kind of identity do they have. It's much more psychological and much more therapeutic. It's different from the old uh, goals of the jobs and voting. And then what you have, I describe in the essay, is sort of a four-step program where you have marginalized people who feel angry that they don't have middle-class success, but they're impotent to do anything about it. And so what do you do? Well, uh, you could, uh, in any other society, you know, hundreds of years ago, when you're angry, you would maybe lash out and revolt or murder. Well, you can't do that. So you have no way to deal with the problem. So you have this internal tension you have to relieve in some way. And so the four-step behavioral program does it for you. So the very first step is to um, uh, try to correct the inequality that uh, you you face with middle-class um, success. You want to give yourself a chance to to get it more. And so what the the um, the therapy the therapeutic idea did was to try to level things a bit more to make it possible for uh, um, marginal people to come in and to enjoy the middle-class success. And so I use an example. Of city college of new york by dumbing down the standards a bit so people who were marginal could, could, could come in this is a problem because obviously the standards decreased to the point where the education wasn't as good there anymore but that was the first the
0: well, sample I, I would give is um, the shift from illegitimate children to out of wedlock childbirth
1: that would be another way. I mean, you yes. get a
0: verbal change that's less judgmental you sort of open up the space it's it's It seems
1: you're giving a feeling feeling of equality so so that both marginal people and average middle class, successful people, they felt similar, or at least the marginal people felt similar, a feeling of equality. And that works to some degree, but not enough. And so the next step in the cognitive behavioral therapy program is to slander middle class people. Uh, You know, you would, uh, you really, you still can't approach their success and they're still there in front of you with all their success and you hate it, but you're impotent to do anything about it. What are you going to do? You're going to tear them down a bit. You're going to ridicule them a bit. You're going to so laugh well. them a bit. And sure enough, we see the whole culture of irony of the 1970s, 80s, making fun of middle class people, their habits and so on. Church lady on Saturday Night Live or the, just in general, you see this kind of stuff, making fun of conservative dress and so on. So you're going to feel a little bit of psychological release by ridiculing um, middle class people. You can't approximate the success, but at least you can tear them down a little bit. And that goes pretty far but not far enough. So the next stage is to begin to change the values a bit to, uh, uh, to depreciate middle-class success. And so for example, to be a, a successful middle-class adult, you would have a family and a mortgage and so on, that was considered to be adulthood. But that we're gonna change the value system a little bit so that anyone could participate in that kind of uh, uh, understanding of adulthood. You could be, uh, have no job and no mortgage, but you have a certain kind of ethical consciousness or psychological approach to life. That's considered now adult-like. And so now you can feel like an adult, even though you haven't enjoyed middle-class success. That's another way for marginal people to come in and join into the middle-class success. And it helps to some degree, but not everyone. And then the final stage is simply to invert the value structure altogether and say middle-class success is not good. It's bad. Patriotism and all the things associated with middle class success—that's bad too. Uh, Free speech is bad because you can't lash out against people who defend the middle class. Two things that are important to middle class people: life and property, uh, and the police who protect them. Well, well, that's bad too because the police are bad. So, the literature that is enjoyed by middle class uh, people—Charles Dickens and Jane Austen—that's bad too. Social justice—that's good literature. So we've inverted the value structures to the point where marginalized people can now feel as if middle class people are not to be envied; they're to be pitied. They're beset by evils. We, the marginal people, are noble and good. And so all of a sudden you take in the value structure, you completely inverted it, and you bring release, psychological release, to millions of marginalized people who no longer have to feel on the bottom, but now can feel on the top. And all you need to do to complete that is to have middle class people buy into it, to feel that, yes, we really are guilty, we really are evil, and to wallow in the morbid and to feel bad about themselves. And all of a sudden, the release that is gained by marginalized people is enormous all of a sudden they feel as if they are on top, they are positive, they are noble, they are good. And those who are once people they envied are now to be pitied. And it really helps so release psychologically enormously.
0: Right, and you say that's a sort of genealogy or one of the plausible genealogies of woke politics, identity politics and, and, and wokeness, yeah. Um, final stage. Virtual reality, we've, we've published on this. I got to say that as a person that hasn't known a TV set in 40 years, I'm pretty uh, ill-informed about how advanced virtual reality is becoming. And, and the examples you give, it's quite advanced in 2022.
1: Yes, it is. It's sort of a, um, with the right goggles and equipment. Uh, you're able to experience things without actually, you can climb Everest without being on Everest, and you really get very nervous. Uh, people who've used the, the virtual reality climb Everest, they feel nervous they might fall down a crevice. There's no crevice, you're on the floor of your living room, but you the goggles make you think you're there. So uh, they give you a feeling of immediacy and presence that is very exciting. The point of virtual reality and some of these other high-tech um, uh, instruments to deal with uh, artificial happiness if the first wave of the cause was neurotransmitters and the second wave was a cause that could be somehow political that you could deal with through the therapeutic method, the third explanation of the cause of your unhappiness is reality itself. <laughs> people are saying the-, well, the third That's why appears true to that. Right. It's true. The third way people are saying, you don't need to change your neurotransmitters. You don't need to go undergo therapy. What you want, you should want. A different so, world. You, you should want what you, you should want. Success. You should want to be able to travel. You should want to be a doctor if you want. Always want to be a doctor. You should want to do these things. Don't try to invert the value structure as if you can't have them. We are going to give you a substitute for reality so that you feel as if you were immersed in that reality. And as a result, by satisfying your goals in life, we're going to remove your cause of unhappiness and make you happy. And you
0: adduce the sort of in the medical world. Uh, it, it, I mean, was it burn victims or something? Yes, like that? It, they actually found out that this does work.
1: Yes, what happened same was-
0: The that, that anesthesia works and other, other right. methods of killing pain.
1: Right, it's interesting in virtual reality, there was a kind of a debate going on within that community about 10 years ago. Um, how did virtual reality work? For example, it was used to uh, help burn victims undergo their dressing changes. Uh, young children, for example, would use virtual reality and play video games.
0: To so take your mind away from it.
1: That's right. Take it's your kind mind of away like mindfulness. Well, so that the was the right thinking, mind. that it distracted you. That's how virtual reality worked. It, it gave you anesthesia away by distracting you from your problem. But then they realized it wasn't simply distraction. There have been other studies, uh, interesting work, some done at University of Maryland, which showed it wasn't simply distraction. It was the feeling of being present in that other reality. And to the degree that you felt present in that other reality, that was the source of the happiness. It wasn't simply the fact that you were distracted in your mood. No, it's because you're experiencing a reality that you believed in. So you
0: could and, you could emotionally or psychologically identify.
1: That's right. And you dissociate
0: yourself from what your experience, what your body's experience, and your mind allows you to inhabit this other world.
1: That's right. And that was a key finding because it meant that you could give people a an alternative or. Technological reality—it's not real, but but substitutes so so well that people would believe in it, and therefore whatever caused their unhappiness would make they would satisfy their goal in life, and they would achieve that reality, and they would become happy. And we see that not just in virtual reality, but even for example the case of the sex robots that are now coming mm-hmm. online; mm-hmm. those are also big, and they've described men, mostly men, who want to have a relationship with a beautiful woman. It's not simply using the beautiful sex doll for sex. There is that, but it's more involved in that. If you interview, if you read the interviews with these men, they actually want to have a, 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 a relationship. relationship with the, yeah. with the doll. They think, they think they do have one. And so they have in their dream that they always want to have a relationship with a pretty woman, not just the sex. And in having the doll, they actually think that they realize that. And therefore their cause of the unhappiness is simply removed.
0: I think... I mean, you, the, you know, uh, sex is 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 one powerful element, but also I think one of the big drivers for adoption of this is going to be grief, because uh, I think the metaverse will appeal to people because the avatars will you can continue to have a relationship with people who die, and so it'll palliate the the grief of loss.
1: It makes sense. It's no different, I suppose, than people arguing you should clone your dog after the dog dies, because you 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 have a you have something in reality that burns you and makes you miserable. We are going to fix reality. We are going to alter it We have a different reality. So it covers a whole wide variety of possibilities. No different than therapy does. Therapy deals with problems of unhappiness from all different causes. Well, so does the uh, the new technology. It was only the uh, first wave, the neurotransmitter, that was sort of one size fits all. You're unhappy for whatever reason. Here's your drug. You're going to get right. the same drug. Yeah, In I this guess, case, it's more diverse.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, sex reassignment. So really virtual reality covers a really wide range of of, of radical technological intervention that promises to actually... Not to make you feel better, but to actually give you an alternative reality.
1: Right. Another case would be the uh, an artificial intelligence app that's, that also has to be included in part of the panoply of technology. So there is an app called Replica, and people come home and they're lonely. Loneliness is a big problem in America, as, as we know, and first things that's covered. And they have uh, a, an app that that over time learns your personality as you communicate with it. It talks back to you, it asks you how your day was, and you feel as if you have a confidant or a secret friend. And there are many people who use this app now and feel less lonely as a result. So they have a reality of loneliness, they fix that reality by having a technological substitute and they've corrected the cause of their unhappiness.
0: In some sense, this is a more successful therapy than cognitive behavioral or Psycho, psycho uh, pharmaceutical, um, but you conclude the essay saying that, in a certain sense, because it's perhaps more successful, if you will, to scare quotes around successful, it's also potentially more politically and culturally volatile.
1: And, and yes, radical. I think you know people who took the take antidepressants, and um, they, they, when they when they realize that the antidepressants fail them. Um, there are other avenues of life, uh, that they may begin to explore and think, maybe I have hope for happiness by exploring the traditional avenues of life, like uh, a family or a work or, or whatever. But in this case, uh, the technology covers all the areas of life. It gives you a substitute for family, work, friends, uh, travel, all the different dimensions of life are already covered by that, uh, technology. And if that fails, and I believe it will fail, because deep down, I think the person who uses virtual reality or sex robots or artificial intelligence knows that it's a counterfeit, knows it's a fake. And once they realize uh, that all the dimensions of their life are fake, and they're really there are no solutions uh, to any of the dimensions. You can't pursue the other dimensions of life because that's why you pursue these technologies. Because you couldn't. People are going to get very, very angry. I believe they're going to. They'll get more radical. They think the system has failed them system wide. That all the different dimensions of life in society are somehow flawed, and they are more likely to rebel against the system much more than if neurotransmitters failed or therapy failed.
0: And you conclude with your own. Dr. Dworkin prescription, which is yeah, that, I, uh, that the only real, not, not solution, but the only real answer to unhappiness is reality.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like <laughs> the very last section of the artificial happiness book that I wrote 15 years ago, I said um, the the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety agents, the alternative medicine, um, the exercise, the endorphins, so many different artificial ways to get happiness. I said, what a waste, because the solution is so simple. Just spend uh, $10, $15 and go to a local library and find some books on philosophy, religion, religion, see what the great thinkers have said about unhappiness and try to build a philosophy of life so that you can deal with it and, and, and create a sort of a, a way to, to cope with it, to accept it and to assimilate it. And life is never going to be perfectly easy. And, and, and that's what you could the best thing you can do for yourself than use these artificial means. In the same way, I say at the end of this essay, that, that uh, again, you're going to have to find uh, a religion, a philosophy, a spirituality, some kind to deal with the fact that life is not perfect and is not rosy, and all the technological solutions or neurotransmitter solutions, they won't give you the happiness you want. You're going to have to find some way to approach life realistically, sensibly, uh, that gives you some distance, that helps you assimilate everyday life problems, but not to be destroyed by them or overwrought by them and overcome by them. and that doesn't that doesn't cost that much. Just go to a local library and read some of the, what the great thinkers have said over the last couple thousand years. I'm sure you'll find some philosophy that help you deal with life in a realistic way.
0: And uh, to conclude, I mean, I guess you wouldn't say that any of these therapies are, if they're means to the end that you just described, I mean, for some people, a stressful day, they should have a drink. Oh, yes. Or for some people stupidification, whether it's virtual cognitive behavioral or pharmaceutical could be a, could be a, um, any more than taking the codeine pills after surgery or painkillers after surgery would be fitting as a way to get to the spot where you could actually live the real life that you have.
1: Right. I am not an ascetic or a purist. (laughs) And I have other work I work on in the area of harm reduction, for example, opioid control or e-cigarettes. And I'm always telling people people, they say people have been pharmacologists before they were farmers. They like to stupefy themselves. Life is difficult. So they want a beer, a glass of wine, whatever, or they want their nicotine. Okay. That's just how it is. Uh, And I accept that. I wouldn't want to be, to get out of hand, but I certainly have no problem with people using everyday stupefying agents because of a bad day at work to feel a little bit better. That's all fine. That's all reasonable. And the people who want to rid society of those things, for example, I think the public health establishment is very opposed to nicotine use of any kind, I'm much more forgiving about the use of nicotine. If people want to resort to nicotine in vaping form, that's just a lot safer than tobacco, let them go ahead and do it. Life can be difficult. Let I have a can of beer. It's fine. Life is difficult. I just don't want total stupefaction so that your life is is a fraud completely. There's a big difference between having a beer or a smoking, a, a vaping an e-cigarette after a bad day of work and a totally inverting reality or totally living in an alternative reality where your friends are not real, your sex partner's not real. Everything is unreal. That's a different level altogether. So, also, too-
0: yeah. Also, yeah. your the piece, part of the thrust of it that I found so interesting is that it's not just as I agree, there's a way in which the uh, the temporary means becomes the becomes a, a prescri- prescribed way of life. But also, there's a way in which in the modern era, we make these technological promises that because they cannot be fulfilled, they have very explosive political implications. I think... In, what it's you're one thing to sort of... Nobody promised that by, you know, having a two shots of whiskey, you you could you could solve your problems of depression. They said, yeah, you'll make you feel better today, but sadly tomorrow, it's not... You're going to wake up sober. Whereas I think a lot these, of the pharmaceutical stuff is a promise that if we if you take these regularly, we'll solve the neurotransmitter problem.
1: Right. I think this is you you hit this is the fundamental difference between common sense and ideology. All ideologies, I would say. Mm-hmm. Common sense understands that life can be difficult. to stupefy yourself, you know, for a moment for taking a can of beer, that's fine. You're not gonna change life altogether. Life will still have its problems. Ideologies are different. Ideologies try to deproblematize existence completely, and that's what the neurotransmitter, the therapist, and the new virtual reality method is trying to do. Is trying to deproblematize existence completely, and that's the promise. So, having a can of beer after a hard day's work is not going to deproblematize existence. You're not going to, you know, everyone who knows who does that after they come back from work realize the problems are still there. They just want a moment's relief. Same with someone who vapes an e-cigarette. They just want a moment's relief. But ideologies. And these explanations for unhappiness that are, are mass explanations, they're trying to fix all the problems and say, if we pursue this solution, we will deproblematize existence. That's a fundamentally different thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, and thanks for that wonderful, this wonderful essay and, and for things.
1: Thank you very much for having me.